Welcome to Dealmaker Diaries, where you hear directly from the dealmakers who you invest with. M&A, real estate syndication, and more. Strap in for unparalleled advice, wisdom, and insight from some of the world's best business minds with Don Thomas and G1C Group. Welcome, guys, to another episode of Dealmaker Diaries. In this episode, we're joined by Clyde, a former Wall Street lawyer turned real estate entrepreneur with a diverse background spanning legal, compliance, and real estate roles, Clive shares how this growth-oriented mindset empowered him to transition from a successful legal career to thriving in the world of commercial real estate. He manages thousands of multifamily doors, advocates for real estate's wealth-building potential, and emphasizes the balance of confidence and humility in negotiations. Join us as we uncover Clive's journey, mindset insights, and lightning round fun. Let's go. Clive, welcome to the show. So great to have you on today. How you doing, Donald? Thanks for having me. I'm great. I'm great. How about you? Are you doing well? I'm doing well. Life is good. No complaints. Excellent. So, Clive, I know you're on a tight schedule, and I'm, I've got a lot of questions. I'm excited to have you on. So why don't we jump right in? Um, and then before we do that, why don't you give the audience a brief, brief summary of your background, who you are, how you got to this point? Yeah, so um, professionally, I, I, I come into the world of real estate after having spent 20 years in corporate America. Started out as a corporate transactional lawyer uh, with a Wall Street-based firm. Uh, servicing that clientele, uh, Wall Street uh, investment banks, uh, and by extension, their clients. So I did that for several years after law school, and then transitioned to being in-house counsel for a then largest pharmaceutical company. Um, Transitioned again, as I'm relocated from New York uh, down to Atlanta, as we were talking about uh, just about 18 years ago. Um, stayed with that company for a couple of years before transitioning again and becoming a chief compliance officer for a Belgian pharmaceutical company. And I was ultimately responsible for their Americas business and supporting the business throughout the Americas. And so all in all, a 20-year corporate career. Throughout that time, I always owned real estate. I always was a landlord throughout that time frame, but it was small-scale, two-unit, single unit, five unit. Um, and it was, if I'm being honest, probably more so hobby-like um, because I was never reliant upon the income. Um, I probably was not managing it as professionally as I think about real estate now and, and kind of the asset management role and, and, and the fiduciary responsibility I have to investors. And so it was just a different scale and scope and, and um, uh, focus. Um, at the end of 2016 is when I decided to part ways with corporate America and pursue um, real estate full time and ultimately pursue real estate in a much bigger at a much bigger scale than I had known previously. And basically took a leap of faith and said, if not now, when? And a lot was going on uh, within my family at a, at a personal level, my oldest child of four children was 
probably six or seven months away from heading off to college. And so she was going to kind of uh, head out into the world. And, and so I definitely wanted to spend as much time with her uh, prior to that. My mom, uh, who, who lives in another state in, in Florida, um, at the time was kind of bouncing between hospital, nursing home and home. And, and so I wasn't really getting to see her in person as much as I would like to. And, and a big part of that was, you know, my time was not necessarily my own. I was well compensated. Um, I was blessed to be well compensated. Uh, I could certainly play a role financially in terms of supporting or, or subsidizing uh, my parents who had been in retirement since 1996. Um, but that's that's one thing, um, being able to actually, you know, be there uh, at a time of your choosing when you want to is a whole nother thing. And so part of the transition was really just um, how do I reclaim my time? And so I just hit pause and said, you know, worst case scenario, I can always go back and I can, if I need to, get a six-figure job and the bills are going to be paid, the lights are going to stay on, the mortgage will be paid. Um, so I ended up reversing, flipping the script, if you will, and making corporate my backup plan and entrepreneurship in the real estate space, my um, primary uh, plan. And so it's been uh, a little over six years now, and um, I've gotten into the world of large-scale multifamily acquisitions, ownership, and operations. And uh, in the last almost year and a half, I've also expanded into the world of development. And so I'm involved with a couple of developments here in Atlanta, where I live. And uh, as you know, Donald, that's a, a very different animal than just going out and acquiring an existing asset. So tons of growth, tons of learning, um, tons of tons of stretching outside of my comfort zone with, you know, getting into an area that is in many respects new, uh, new to me and different than what I was doing in the comfort zone of a 20 year corporate career. So uh that's probably more background than you need. We'll 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 dial down and, and dig into any of those areas uh, in more detail. All right, great, great. So yeah, let's let's start from there. So can you share some pivotal moments from your transition from being a corporate transactional lawyer to working in-house for for a pharmaceutical giant? How did this experience shape your perspective on negotiations and deals? So once you um, once you go through and you're a part of that world, um, you realize a few things. Um, you're dealing with business at the highest level um, that uh, you, you're going to find it. Um, and so I have been involved with transactions that are billion dollar transactions where I'm playing my small role in contributing to that that deal coming to fruition. Um, but you you kind of learn uh, there's an expectation of excellence when you're operating at that level. And so even when you get out of that world directly, the skill set that you've developed, uh, the negotiation skills that you've developed, um, all of that is transferable to whatever area that you ultimately end up in. And so while I tell people I'm a recovering lawyer, I, I <laughs> haven't practiced traditional law in many, many years. Um, 
there's not a day that goes by where I'm not drawn upon the skill set, um, the thought process, the way to analyze things um, that I got from those early days of, of you know, grinding through as a junior lawyer, learning the ropes, um, you know, in the, in the context of Wall Street transactions. And so, um, you know, when it comes to negotiations in connection with real estate, you know, negotiations, again, that skill set is going to be applicable to real estate, is going to be applicable to really any form of business where um, you're trying to reach an objective and, 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 and uh, the person that you need to uh, reach your objective, maybe they have a different motivation, maybe they have uh, different needs that you need to be attuned to. Um, but I would just say that the skill set is definitely transferable to the things that I do now, the conversations and, and the negotiations that we have now. Yeah, absolutely. I can imagine. And to add on, so as a, as a former chief compliance officer in the biopharma sector, how did you balance legal requirements and ethical considerations in your decision making? So could you highlight a particularly challenging compliance situation you encountered? Yeah, so um, so I basically stood up the compliance department at, at the last firm that I was with. And so as I was building it, um, it's important to understand that there's a segregation between the legal department, of which I was not a part, and the compliance department. So we, we developed a, a mantra that basically said compliance, the tagline was compliance, it's my job too. And so what I would constantly say is that our success as a company is not going to come down to however many people are reporting to me within the compliance department. Unless the compliance, it's my job too, is embraced by every employee, we're not going to be successful in the enterprise that we're engaged in. Um, so oftentimes the question may come to us, you know, can we legally do this? And I would have my thoughts and opinions on that and, and the general counsel or the legal department or the, the lawyer supporting that product team would weigh in on whether or not it was legally permissible. I would have more emphasis and focus on whether or not it was ethical, um, to do. And, and so you've got to understand the distinction between whether something is legal and whether something is ethical. And um, once you appreciate that distinction um, and you help your clients to appreciate that distinction, uh, that's going to be a, a lens through which you look at a variety of things that come your way. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I, I think I got a fairly got to the point where I was fairly good at at making that distinction and helping my clients to understand that distinction. And, um, you know, again, that's that's from the CEO down to the person in the mailroom. Uh, you know, everyone needs to understand and appreciate uh, the importance of that that distinction. Yeah, and I'm sure, I mean, you know as well as I, I think that same distinction exists in being a GP in large multifamily commercial real estate as well, there's having that fiduciary duty that you spoke of that comes up quite often in our discussions on GP calls as well. We can say, well, it's legal, but 
yeah, is that is that really ethical? Is it a good look? Is that what is that does that best serve our investors? Yeah, that the, the good luck piece is, is another good lens to look at. It. <laughs> so so I'm big on transparency. And so for me, um and there's the phrase that you know the the sun sunshine is kind of the best uh what's i forget how the phrase goes but basically shining a light on something and exposing it to the 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 sunlight um it'll stand that you know if it can withstand that test uh then you're probably in good shape and and so from a transparency standpoint as a fiduciary in the deals that i do that we do i'm always thinking about is this something I would be comfortable sharing with any of our investors, any of our limited partners uh, on this transaction? And if the answer is no, then I really want to understand why the answer is no. Um, and again, that's a different than is what we're doing legal versus is what we're doing prudent or is it you know, why is, <laughs> or, you know, is this going to be viewed favorably by the people that who have entrusted us to, to invest their, their money on their behalf. So, um, yeah, that's a good example of, of the distinction playing out in the real world. All right. Perfect. All right. So let, let's shift a little bit from to your entrepreneurial shift to real estate. So your transition from the legal world to becoming a general partner in large scale multifamily communities is quite a leap. So what motivated you to make this this pivot and what skills from your legal background do you find most valuable in your current role? Yeah, so at the end of 2016, um, at that point I had been a corporate citizen for 20 years. Um, I was in my mid forties at that point and just said, if not now, when? Um, and the motivation was really not wanting to live my entire professional life, never having given the entrepreneurial journey a chance. Hmm. Um, so even when I went to law school, I didn't go to law school necessarily thinking I was going to practice law traditionally. I just always heard you get a law degree, you can leverage that in so many ways, and you can take that into so many different careers. Um, you don't have to be stuck in. Uh, a traditional legal role. Um, and so, uh, you know, arriving on campus uh, as a law student uh, back in the mid 90s, my mindset was this will serve me well, regardless of what I end up ultimately doing with it. Um, then you get on a path and you have the reality of, oh, I've got six figures in debt as a result of these three years in law school. I probably should pay that money back. And then you you get on a path uh, conveyor belt or a treadmill, whatever analogy you want to use, where now you're starting to make good money. Um, but what I tell people is, yes, you're making good money, but you no longer, your time is no longer yours. Someone else owns your time. Um, and the other thing I say about, you know, a good salary or being well compensated is that you cannot pass on a high W-2 income to your ears. Yes. So um, I don't care how well compensated you are, um, you can uh, make sure that you are leveraging that highly compensated situation so that you can transfer that or translate that into 
assets that are appreciating in value and generating cash flow and what have you that that can be passed on and left as part of your legacy of creating generational wealth, um, which is again part of my motivation in making that transition was, you know, I I'm the first to go to college in my family. I'm first to go to grad school, law school, lots of firsts within my family, and. I didn't just want to be kind of one and done. I, I I didn't want it to end with me and okay, Clive did that, but I didn't really change the overall trajectory of my family. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I talk about generational wealth, um, I'm not even so much focused on my my immediate children, um, of which I have four. I'm thinking about my not yet conceived grandchildren. How will I? create a, a foundation upon which they will be able to stand. And whether I'm here or not, how am I going to be able to shape and contribute to their life trajectory as a result of what I've been able to uh, leave in terms of legacy and in terms of what I've been able to create in terms of generational wealth? So um, I thought pers- pursuing entrepreneurship specifically in the in the world of real estate which which is was what my interest was i thought i had a better chance of accomplishing some of these things and and um creating the legacy that i want to leave than just being a, a highly paid corporate citizen so for me uh the additional motivation was i also uh, after 20 years, found myself feeling like maybe I was being somewhat of a hypocrite in 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 counseling my children and telling them you can do anything that you want to do and you know anything that you want to do, anything you put your mind to, you can do. Um, I felt that the only thing I had really modeled for them was being an employee, mm-hmm. and I wanted them to experience me as an entrepreneur. Um, because my concern was that potentially that they were looking at my life path as somewhat of a blueprint. And I wanted to give them uh, a different element or a different perspective of me um, other than dad's well-paid, you know, he takes care of everything. Um, but we, we only know him in the context of him being an employee of someone. And, um, you know, in terms of control, I I tell people this today that you can be a well-compensated employee today. You can go in tomorrow and they can say, Donald, um, we really appreciate what you've done for us over the last X number of years, but we're going in a different direction where we're closing down that department or we're streamlining that department or we're eliminated, whatever the the corporate speech is uh, that they, they prep. Uh, bottom line is that they can come to you and say, the comfort zone that you've been in, uh, we're pulling the rug out from under you and, you know, go fend for yourself. Um, right. At the end of the day, companies are, are rightfully so. They're always going to do what's in the best interest of the company. And that sometimes means that they will do that um, without regard for what's in Donald's best interest or Clive's yeah. best interest. And so um, I just wanted to give something else a, a, a different try, a different look. And um, and I set out on a path of educating myself on this world. Um, and I did that through really 
listening to podcasts like this. I went from in 2016 and prior, I don't think I'd listened to a podcast. Come late 2016, early 2017, I was listening to multifamily, <laughs> very focused, multifamily related podcasts pretty much on a daily basis. Um, I, I started attending multifamily conferences where I'm surrounded by people in this space, um, prospective partners, prospective investors. Um, uh, I'm also now at this point in time, I'm, I'm heavily invested in commercial real estate, again, with a focus on multifamily because I've moved my retirement, legacy retirement funds from wherever they were sitting, I've moved them into a self-directed IRA and I've invested over the course of 18 months, probably in 10 deals, uh, the types of deals that I aspire to do and that I'm learning about and, and I'm get, getting a bird's eye view from those passive investments. I'm getting a better appreciation of how are these deals put together? What do the business plans look like? What does the capital stack look like? What does investor relations look like? I'm getting that from the perspective of just being a limited partner, passive investor in those deals. But all of that is contributing to, I, I jokingly refer to it as, as Clive's um, self-directed uh, real estate MBA, <laughs> because I'm doing all of these things to, to put together my own curriculum to figure out how do I position myself so that I can ascend to the sponsorship level uh, to do these deals. Okay, and, and Clyde, so to add, to dig into a little more on wealth creation. So, I mean, you've shared your insights on various panels. Could, could, could you elaborate on your philosophy about real estate's role in creating generational wealth? And how do you communicate this to like your kids or others looking to enter the market? Yeah, so um, so my 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 daughters in particular, they know. Um, this is advice I give to others, but they know that um, dad will not be paying for a white wedding. <laughs> um, <laughs> however, their their first real estate investment, um, dad's got us. Um, you know, if we're going to get that duplex, that triplex, uh, or that quad. Um, you know, dad's going to um, be, he's got our back. He, he's going to be uh, there to help us get into that first real estate investment, whatever it is. And they know that mommy and daddy didn't do a traditional white wedding. And so that's not something that, that their parents, you know, prioritized or valued. Um, in fact, uh, I and my wife, we owned in New York City a piece of real estate that we own until this day. We we acquired a piece of real estate in New York City, 1997 to be exact, before we were legally married. And we own that as joint tenants with rights of survivorship. And so we place more of an emphasis on that than what many pe people place an emphasis on a traditional white wedding that costs 30, 40, 50,000. And yeah. some people, some people even, I can't, understand it, but people even go into debt to get married. Um, yeah. But that was just not us. That was not something we prioritized. And so in terms of going back to modeling for our children, our children know that. Um, and so they they know our emphasis that we place on real estate and they've seen, uh, and real estate is very tangible. So they get to see the rents that I charge uh, for that place today in New York City. 
Um, they know what we bought it for. They have a rough sense as to what apartments in New York City go for, and we own it free and clear. So they, they've seen firsthand what real estate can do from an appreciation standpoint. Um, I probably haven't spent as much time talking to them about leveraging that equity um, and, and how you can leverage that to do other things, um, either more real estate uh, at a higher level or you know business um, and, and pulling that equity and putting it into business. But generally, there's a quote out there that says 90% of, and I think it's a US centric quote, um, but 90% of, of millionaires, either they made mon their money in real estate or their money uh, is heavily sitting in commercial real estate. Um, and if you think about the American dream, the same American dream that my mom was pursuing when, when she came to the US uh, and then years later brought us, um, the, the, the family home is the center of most US wealth. And if you think about the wealth that was created, uh, you know, in the in the mid-century, the 1950s and 1960s, those people that were able to buy a home then have been able to leverage that through appreciation and and passing that wealth on to their children have been able to create wealth from where they reside, mm -hmm. and so. Um, when you talk about appreciation, when you talk about the tax benefits, real estate is a tax advantage uh, vehicle um, and asset. Um, and um, despite the ups and downs of the economy, I tell people I lived in New York, wh why I, I remain high on New York and I still own in New York. You know, I, I've, I've gone through 9-11 in New York City. Uh, I've, I've, I've lived through the Great Recession. Um, you know, I've owned a property since 1997. I continue to own it today. And so um, I always knew that New York, regardless of what's going on in the macro economy, it's always going to rebound and it's always going to appreciate to higher heights. And so when COVID hit, um, the timing was such that we ended up losing a tenant. Um, and then when it came time to backfill, and replace that tenant, there were so many people who were fleeing the city that there was kind of a downward uh, pressure on rents so that mm -hmm. you had to kind of basically slash your rents in order to secure um, you know, a good tenant. And so we did that, um, but it's just now that I'm seeing that not only have we gotten back to where we were, but we've surpassed that and um, the rents that we're getting now uh, are substantially higher than what we were receiving at the peak of 2019. And so, again, the upward trajectory when you own real estate, uh, regardless of blips along the way, regardless of, um, you know, um, recessions, uh, where real estate is going to continue to appreciate um, land, uh, you know, the saying, <laughs> they're not making more of it. Yeah. So if you, if you own and control it, um, as that land appreciates uh, in value, you're going to be the beneficiary of that. Absolutely. Okay. So let, let's transition a little bit into mindset, Clyde. Yeah. Uh, so 
Moving from a successful legal career to an entrepreneurial role in real estate requires a shift in mindset. So can you describe the mental process you went through when making this significant change? And how did you manage any uncertainties and doubts? Yeah, so I, I talk about stepping outside of your comfort zone. So the moment you decide or once you set out with the intention that I'm going to pivot and, and become an entrepreneur of any kind, uh, real estate or any other area, one, you're stepping into a territory that you have not yet navigated. Um, so this is new terrain. Um, so there's always some trepidation involved with going into the unknown. Uh, so that's one thing you need to start wrapping your head around. Um, when I left corporate life, I went from being blessed with a, a, a substantial income and compensation package to zero income, mm. essentially, um, you know, outside of the, the rentals that I owned. Um, so that took a mindset shift of, because for many years, 2016 was not the first time I had thought about going and pursuing this journey. And, and I'd always convinced myself that how are you going to replace this income or can you, can you live with less than this income? Um, and somehow for those many years, I convinced myself, this is the more practical thing. This is the thing that, you know, this is the thing that is safe and certain, <laughs> um, yeah in hindsight, recognizing that it was never safe and it was never certain, but, right. but you convince yourself of lots of things. If you don't want to do something, yeah. uh, you'll find <laughs> ways to persuade yourself that that's not the prudent thing to do. So again, in 2016, I had to get comfortable with the direct deposit that's been hidden every two weeks for as many years as I can remember <laughs> that's going to stop. And for the first time in my adult life, I had more money leaving my household on a monthly basis than was coming into my household. So the mindset of seeing your pie shrink and just appreciating that you're doing that with purpose and intention, because I describe it as being willing to take a step back in order to leap forward. And there have been a couple of points in my career where I've made a decision where I, I step back or I scale back from a, from a compensation standpoint in order to get on a pathway that I thought ultimately was going to be a better pathway from a long-term perspective. And so this, this last transition was the biggest kind of step back because I didn't, you know, it wasn't like I, I stepped from here to here was stepping from here, you know, to, to almost the ground floor to again, uh, leap forward, at least is the intention. So mindset is key because as you see that pie shrinking, you've got to convince yourself to stay the course, be resilient, be, be perseverant, uh, in what it is that you're trying to achieve because the other thing is that I'm not an overnight success. I didn't just make a decision that I'm going to do this. And then in a few months, it was off and popping. It, you know, it took me <laughs> two years 
from the very first LOI letter of intent uh, that I, I submitted to acquire, I think it was a 92 unit property in here in Atlanta. We didn't get that. Uh, this is April of 2019. And I said, oh, okay, we didn't get that first one. We'll get one next month or the month thereafter. Fast forward, it effectively took me the better part of two years before we got awarded the first deal. Mm. Um, and, and COVID was in the mix. So that disrupted you know, inventory and deal flow and what have you. But nonetheless, it took me the better part of two years to get awarded that first deal. The first deal, 244 units. We acquired for 30 million. So I went from a five unit, which I, I acquired right after leaving corporate. And we sold that two weeks into COVID, as a matter of fact, uh, the last day of March of 2020. I remember it well, because I was outside of a bank uh, trying to leverage their Wi-Fi to, to get this deal <laughs> closed. Um, and I couldn't be inside because we were literally in the in the height of COVID and, and the bank was not operational. You couldn't just walk into your branch. And I was down in Florida. Uh, my father didn't have Wi-Fi or his Wi-Fi was a little sketchy at the house. And so I went to the bank and I basically set up my laptop in the parking lot, leveraged in their Wi-Fi to get that deal closed. <laughs> Um, but I went from that five unit to 244 units and, you know, my journey in large scale multifamily was really off and running at that point. Okay. So you're off and running and what, what, what strategies have you used to maintain a growth oriented mindset and embrace continuous learning throughout these transitions? Yeah. So, so continuous learning is, is it's synonymous with growth. Um, like if 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 you're trying to grow in whatever your your area of interest is, you've got to be open-minded. You've got to be willing to take on new information to scale to new heights. Um, if you rely on the information you have today, that will serve you for today, but it won't necessarily serve you for tomorrow. And and um, so I'm constantly putting myself in a position where I'm I'm continuing to attend conferences, I'm continuing to listen to podcasts, I'm continuing to put myself in a situation where I'm surrounded by people who, where I'm the small fish in the room. Uh, those are the best rooms for me to be in. Um, uh, I'm I'm generally a uh, I think of myself as a as a humble person, so it's not even a matter of of shrinking myself. Uh, it's, it's, it's just being hungry, um, to be around people and in settings where I can learn, uh, more than I can teach. I mean, I love to, to share my journey and, and, and podcasts it gives me that, that opportunity. This, this platform gives me that opportunity, but I love being in settings where I'm going to be stretched. I'm going to be challenged. And, uh, there are people that I can look up to um and figuratively look up to and say they are accomplishing and they are doing something that i currently don't understand appreciate um or i'm not involved with and and how can how can i learn uh that and add that to my portfolio um so you know you've just got to be open minded okay and Entrepreneurship and real estate investment, as you know, inherently involves risk taking. So how how are you approaching risk assessment and management 
in your real estate ventures, drawing from both your legal background and your experience with compliance? Yeah, so um, it's funny because the first piece of that risk management goes back to the risk that I took in in stepping outside of my comfort zone for the unknown. So that's that's one piece. But in my day-to-day, in terms of how I think about risk management in the business that I'm engaged in, one, I'm a for each one of the deals that I'm a, a, a partner in, I'm a fiduciary and I have a fiduciary responsibility to those who entrusted us uh, to invest uh, their hard-earned dollars on their behalf. So my risk management or my risk uh, lens is um, probably even even sharper than it is in managing my own affairs and my own you know personal real estate holdings. Um, so no surprise, having been a, a corporate transactional lawyer, having been a chief compliance officer, there is some degree of risk aversion. Um, that comes along with those two respective careers, because usually in the settings that I've been in professionally, I've been the voice of reason. I've been the one to kind of rein things in and and, and try and minimize the amount of risk that's being taken in order to a- achieve an objective. I would tell uh, sales representatives when I would do these um, new hire trainings, I would say, look, think of me as as your lawyer, a free lawyer that is here to help you stay out of trouble while maximizing your business. So each of you as a sales rep, you have your own book of business that you're responsible for delivering on. And you have at your disposal a free lawyer, and you won't hear that phrase too many (laughs) times. Probably ever, yeah. (laughs) But you you have effectively a free lawyer or free compliance professional who's there to help you achieve your objectives while minimizing the risk. Um, and so, you know, in my day-to-day business now as, as a general partner and sponsor of these deals, there's risk management on the en- the point of entry. So before we even get in the deal, how are we looking at the deal? So I'll give you an example. Um, so we just closed on a transaction on June 30th, um, the largest uh, multifamily deal that I've been involved with to date. We acquired a property for $77 million. We wow. raised approximately $38 million in equity. So as you know, Donald, um, from a macroeconomy standpoint, we're in somewhat of a precarious period. We're, we, we've seen interest rates that have shot up over the last 12 to 18 months uh, at an unprecedentedly fast rate. Um, we've seen rates effectively go from near zero to what they are today. And that, and that has had a, a, a huge chilling effect on our space, right? Yeah. Um, the thing that I say, I say about that is you don't have to be an economist to feel that, that the heaviness that's in the environment about investing. So generally, when we go into a precarious period, people's natural inclination is for them to, to freeze and do no harm. Um, If I don't make any moves, uh, people think, this is the mindset, if I don't make any moves, if I don't take any risk, I'm going to be safer. And so raising $38 in equity during this environment, and and we raised that primarily from individual retail investors. So we didn't get any 
institutional large checks that came in to round out that those dollars. That was individuals investing anywhere from the minimum investment of seventy five thousand up to you know whatever the hot the high point was. And so, getting into that deal from a risk management standpoint, we were able to tell them a few things that I think helped us tell a story that got them comfortable despite the the macro economy. So one, we got into that deal by assuming a fixed rate loan, HUD loan, at 3.49% interest rate with, a, nice. I think, 38 years remaining on the term. So in an environment of sharply rising interest rates, which still, as we speak here today, there's still uncertainty as to, are they going to stay where they are now? for a little while and then start yeah. coming down or are we still looking at an additional 25 basis points or mm. 50 you know there's still that discussion so we're not out of the woods yet um but when you have investors who are hearing all the all of this what i call noise about mm. what's going on in the economy what's happening with rents what's happening with asset values being able to take that off the table and say um Clearly, we're concerned about the macro economy, but we're not concerned about what Jerome Powell is going to do next month or the month thereafter, because we've taken that risk associated with variable debt or variable rates, we've taken that off the table. The other thing that we've done is everyone knows that the more highly leveraged you are, the less room or less margin for error there is. And so uh, on my typical, my early deals, we would have leverage that would be seven, anywhere from 70 to probably high 70, 78% leverage. Mm -hmm. um, and and that, 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 you know, that wasn't considered to be aggressive. Yeah. Um, but today, um, if you're putting certain debt on, you, you know, even when, I'm being told 65% leverage is possible. I'm I'm putting my pencil down if I can't get that deal to pencil at 60% leverage. Um, the deal that we closed uh, at the end of June, the leverage is probably in a low 50 percentile range. So we take that off the table because we can say, look, investors, regardless of what's going on in the macro economy, when we are so lowly levered, but yet the numbers, the deal works, the deal pencils at this leverage level, we don't worry about shifts in the in the market. We know what the overall trajectory of, of real estate is. And so as long as we don't need to get out of the deal tomorrow, um, and again, going into it, we have a plan for what's the minimum or what's the the, the whole period and, it, and our whole period is typically five years. And um, there are situations where we may hold longer than five years. And we're, again, going back to being a fiduciary, we have a fiduciary responsibility to make sure we're never exiting into a bad market um, uh, just to say that, well, we we stuck by our, our word and we said we'd be out in five years, so we're selling it. <laughs> That's not a good fiduciary. So if we get to five years, and it's not a good market to exit into, then we're not going to exit. Um, so just sharing that as an example of two things that we're doing differently on, on a deal that literally we closed uh, less than two months ago. 
Um, that's an example of how we're thinking about risk management. There are other things that I could get into, but but uh, for sake of brevity, I'll, I'll stop there. All right, and congrats on getting that deal closed. I'm sure that I'm sure that wasn't a simple simple deal to get get completed. So congrats on that. Thank you. We're, we're, we we think it's uh, a compelling deal in a compelling market, and uh, we think it's ultimately going to do well for us and our investors. All right, and I and I know you're tight on time, Clive. So let's let's hop into a quick lightning round before before I let you hop off. Sure. All right. So, um, morning person or night person? Definitely night person. I, I and I can elaborate, but I'm definitely a night person. Okay. And favorite real estate book or resource you recommend? Uh, if it's real estate, it's going to be this book that doesn't get too far from me. So this is the best ever apartment syndication book, okay. a four-part system for raising money and buying apartments. So I recommend this uh, probably at least once or twice a week uh, to, to folks. And this is by Joe Fearless. Um, and he has a daily podcast in case anyone's interested. But that's the book. The A to Z Bible, as I refer to it, if you want to be in the space that I'm in of syndicating apartment deals. Okay. And one word that describes your negotiation style. One word. Authentic. Authentic. Okay. I'll go with that. All right. And if you could have lunch with any historical figure, who would it be? Any historical figure? Uh, Nelson Mandela. Okay. And top productivity hack that keeps you on track. I, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna give a shout out to Calendly um, mm -hmm. for a couple reasons. One, I, I use them, and and that's how I manage my meetings on a daily basis. Um, but the CEO is also uh, here in Atlanta. Um, okay. and, uh, started the company and, uh, you know, he's a, a billionaire now, at least on paper. Um, but the company is integral to so many people's daily organization and planning. Yeah. And it's a tool that I, I can't imagine living without at this point. I, I've leveraged it so heavily over the last several years. Okay. And, um, favorite travel destination to unwind? Uh, so it's probably South Africa, specifically Johannesburg and Cape Town. Um, and uh, I'll stop there. Okay. Never, I, been, I, never I, been to Africa, I, but yeah. Either of those destinations, um, depending on what season, uh, what time of the year it is, but uh, Johannesburg and Cape Town, uh, the country is a beautiful country. I've only seen a small percentage of it, but uh, I, I, you don't have to twist my arm to to get me to get on a plane uh, to either of those destinations. Okay. And one piece of advice you wish you'd received earlier in your career? Uh, the advice would be embrace personal risk. Okay. All right, a couple of more, and then you're you're out of here. So, a skill yeah. or hobby you're currently working to improve? 
I'm going to say running um, and, and tying this into one of your earlier questions. I'm not a morning person, uh, but that's when I do run, it's in the morning. So I, I'm not the runner who rolls out of bed and my feet go into my my running shoes. I need to drag myself out of bed. and But um, running, I'm embracing even calling myself a runner. And I've been running for pretty much the entirety of my time here in Atlanta. Um, so I'm constantly trying to improve. And this Saturday, in a few days, I'm running uh, a, another half marathon. Okay. Yeah, I'm a runner as well. And I think I'm in Tokyo, you being in Georgia, I think you almost have to get out there pretty early or it's not going to get done, especially in the summer with the heat. It's almost yes. mandatory you get out there early. Agreed. All right. And best way you recharge after a challenging day? Um, I think it's, it's, it's probably, well, I generally do the exercise in the morning, so it's not at the end of the day. So after a long day, me doing something, um, I don't watch TV. I haven't watched TV in a long time, but, um, I will watch, uh, I'll check into YouTube or I'll, I'll, I'll check into something streaming. Uh, whether I'm paying attention to it or not, but it will just help me wind down. Um, and so anything that will help me wind down, uh, whether it's a, a comedy or whether or not it's, it's you know, anything along those lines, uh, I'll find on the internet and and kind of just use that as a way of just winding down. All right, sweet. All right, so yeah, Clyde, thanks so much for joining us today. This has been very engaging. I think... Um, very, very engaging for our listeners as well. So um, before we hop off, if anybody wants to get in touch with you, collaborate, learn more about you, what's the best way for them to get in touch? Yeah, so I'm active on social media, um, LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram. Uh, the best way to get a hold of me is to just go to my website, which is parkroyalcapital.com. You okay. go to my website and all of the ways of connecting with me are there. If you want to set up a, a, a meeting with me, um, you have that option. Um, and uh, I'd welcome your, your listeners and viewers to reach out. All right. Thanks again, Clive. Um, I know you're tight on time, so I'm going to let you hop off. But yeah, thanks so much for joining us. I'm going to have to get you back again soon. I mean, I could have gone on a couple more hours with you. So yeah, yeah. Have next, you back. Next, next time we'll talk development. All right. For sure. All right, thanks a lot, Clyde. You have a great one. All right, be well now. Likewise. There you have it, guys. Another episode of Dealmaker Diaries in the books. If you enjoy and or find value in what we're doing, please do leave us a nice review. It goes a long way in keeping the show moving in the right direction. For you investors, if you're looking for places to put your hard-earned capital to work, head on over to our website, g1cgrp.com and sign up for our investor list to be informed of the different projects we're raising capital for that will provide you with the cash flow your investments so much deserves.